0: Last Sunday we began a uh, new series together entitled If God is for Us. and We began to talk about what would it mean or what would it look like in our lives if we began to live under the revelation that God is for us and not against us. How would that change the way we live? How would that change the way we conducted our business or raised our families or handled our money or how we just exercised or lived out our faith? If we begin to understand that God is for us and not against us. And we begin to understand that God literally is in our corner. He is fighting for me and you today in order to see His will, His plan, His purpose accomplished in our lives. So let's look in Romans chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 28, our foundational scripture for this study. The Bible says, and we know that God causes everything. I want you all to say that word with me, everything, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Here it is. If God is for us, who can ever be against us. Since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us, let's say that next word together, everything, let's say it one more time, everything else. So won't he also give us everything else. Let's look at our first point on your outline. Just a quick revisit of what we talked about last week. We said according to Romans 8, The Bible says that God has chosen us, God has called us, God has made us, and God has gave us everything that we need to live a victorious life through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. God is for us and not against us. He is fighting for you. One of my favorite scriptures in the Old Testament is a scripture that says God is a warrior. It literally says God is a man of war. Isn't it amazing to think about the fact that God is warring for you? I mean, we kind of had this conversation last week. We, we kind of imagined for just a minute the reality that, that we are all here today, not because we always made the right choices, not because we always made the right decisions, but we are here today because in spite of some poor choices and poor decisions, God was fighting for us. When we weren't fighting for ourselves, when we were working against even our own good and our own benefit, God was at war for our own souls, for our own victory, and for his purpose to be accomplished in our lives. And so we begin to talk a little bit about that reality that God is for us, God is fighting for us. And then we asked the question. We said, If God is for us and if He's given us everything that we need to live a victorious life through Christ, then why is there such a discrepancy between what God has given us and what most people are living? Because when you look around the world today, you find out that most people aren't really living that victorious life. As a matter of fact, I see a lot of Christians who are still struggling with their sin, who are still struggling with temptation, who are still battling in many areas of their life, and they just don't seem to ever break through into the fullness that God has for them. So how is it that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for our victory, but yet so many people are still living defeated lives, coming short of what God planned for them? Well, we answer that question Kind of briefly last week, look at the next point on your outline. We said that the problem really is, the problem is that most people don't actually believe that God is for them. Most people don't actually believe that God is for them. Most people, we said, that when something tragic or traumatic happens in their life, most people literally shake their fist at God in anger and frustration. Most people, when something traumatic happens, they actually begin to blame God for their problems, for their pain, for their heartache, and for their heartbreak. Why? Because they don't actually believe God is for them. In the back of their mind, they actually think, God is against me. And for whatever reason, he's trying to get me or stop me or interfere with me in some way, form, or fashion. Well, today, I want to look at that next part on that statement. I want you to understand that it is unbelief. It is unbelief that is robbing us of our full potential in Christ. The reality is is that God has truly done everything that he needs to do to accomplish our freedom, our victory, our salvation, and our deliverance. There is nothing else that he needs to do in order for me and you to experience all that he has purchased for us through his blood and by the power of the resurrection. So how do I tap into that fullness of God's potential? I have to overcome what the Bible calls unbelief. Belief, because it is that unbelief, it is that reality that says though I say I believe God is for me, I don't really live like God is for me because there's something in me that doesn't believe that He's really fighting for me. Let me give you a great scripture because I want you to see what the Bible says About unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, the Bible says, Beware, brethren. Now, that word, brethren, is a key word because that lets us know that the writer of Hebrews was not talking to a lost world. He was talking to Christians. He was talking to brothers and sisters in the faith. So, this is a message to the church. This is a message to those of us that have accepted Jesus Christ and made a decision to follow Him. And so he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now it's interesting that the Bible calls an unbelieving heart an evil heart. And let me show you why it's an evil heart. Because look what unbelief does. Look what it says. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, what does unbelief do? Unbelief causes us to depart, step back, step away from God. Not just from God, but from God's plan, from God's purpose, from God's will for my life. See, when there is unbelief in my heart, unbelief actually causes me to look for alternate alternatives or alternate options to my problem. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but uh, I have schemed a few plans in my mind. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever been in financial problem or struggle anybody ever been in financial problem and and you know what happens when you get in financial struggle your mind begins to scheme a plan right and you start scheming these plans you start trying to figure out well I can do this and I can do that and I can go here I can do that and all of a sudden we start scheming in our minds But it's not just limited to our finances, right? If if you've ever had uh, problems in relationships, problem in your family, problem with your children, when 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 all the world seems to fall apart, we tend to begin to scheme ideas and options and opportunities in our mind of how are we going to fix the problem, how are we going to resolve the issue, how are we going to accomplish the task that needs to be accomplished because in reality, the reason we're scheming a plan in our mind is because we don't think God's really at work. God, you're not working here or else you're not working fast enough for my liking, so I'm going to devise a plan. Proverbs chapter 3 tra- tells us not to, to, uh, to trust the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding. But how many times do we get in the midst of life and we begin to scheme a plan because God's not working fast enough or at least in the way that we think He ought to be working. And so we decide that we're going to choose an alternative path In order to accomplish, here's the problem, in order to accomplish our purpose. When in reality, that is unbelief. Unbelief causes you to depart from God's path and choose your own. Let's read the next verse because it even goes a little bit deeper. It says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil And unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. So so the writer of Hebrews says, hey, just in case you missed what I said in verse 12, let me say it again in verse 13. When you have an unbelieving heart, an unbelieving heart will turn you away from God. It will turn you away from His path. It will turn you away from His plan. It will turn you away from His direction. And it will cause you to scheme a plan of activity based on your own reasoning and understanding. Now let me just say this to you. God works through reasoning and understanding, but many times we allow our intellect to get in the way of our faith and rob us of living a life of confidence in God because we want to scheme our own way out. Amen? So look what it says here, the rest of this verse. He says, you must warn each other every day While it is still today, so that none of you will be, look at this next phrase, deceived by sin. So guess what sin does? Sin deceives us. And not only does sin deceive us, but look what it says. So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. What does sin do? Sin deceives us. And then sin hardens our heart against God. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But what I want to do today, I really felt like the Lord said that we need to really unmask and undermine the spirit of unbelief that wants to rob us of our potential. So I want to give you today three elements of unbelief. And I want to give you the remedy that God has given us in order to overcome that spirit of unbelief that really does want to rob us of our potential in Christ. When you look the word unbelief up in the Greek, there are three main definitions that are given for the word unbelief, and we're gonna look at those three things today. The first one on our next screen is simply this. Unbelief is simply a lack of faith. That's the first definition in the Greek of what unbelief is. Unbelief is a lack of faith. And I want you to understand that a lack of faith is the result of a lack of intimacy with God. So here's the problem. It's hard to have confidence in somebody that you don't really know. Now think about that for a minute. It's hard to have confidence in somebody that you don't really know. Now, we all know people, right? We all have people in our lives that if they called you up today when you got out of church and they said, hey, I was just going to let you know that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this, you're going to hang up the phone. And there are some people, if they call you and tell you they're going to do something, you hang up the phone and in your mind you immediately think, well, I'm not going to bank on it. <laughs> well, we'll just wait and see if it really does happen. Because there are people in our lives that we know that we can't trust, <laughs> right? Right? But then there are other people, right? I want you to think about it for a minute. There are other people in your life that if they call you up and they say, Hey, I just want to let you know that tomorrow I'm going to do this and this and this. And I got that took care, for, take, took care of for you. don't even have to worry about it. There are people in your life that because of your relationship with them and because of the character of their life, when you get off the phone with them, you don't even think about it anymore because you know they're going to do what they said they would do. Right? We all got people like that. People that you trust with your life, people that you would trust with your family, people that you would trust with your children. Why? Because you have a relationship with them, and out of a life of intimacy with them, you have begun to discover the character of their heart. Let me just say that God is falsely accused on a regular basis. There are so many false accusations made against God. Well, God is unfair, and God is unjust, and God is this, and God is that, and God is this. And the reason that those statements are made is because people are making assumptions about a God that they actually don't know. I heard a story of two preachers, a true story. Uh, One guy was a young evangelist, and he was doing a revival in a town, and he said he was with the pastor and. They were driving through their town, or the town where that pastor was, and he said they went by a church, and man, the parking lot was packed at that church, and there were people everywhere, and, and he said, the evangelist, he said, I asked the pastor, he said, man, what's going on with that church? Man, it looks like God's really doing something. Man, look at all those people in the parking lot. Don't even look like they got anywhere to park, and that pastor said, oh, well, you don't want to go there. He said, what do you mean I don't want to go? He said, oh, you don't want to go there. He said... They're not really a godly church. And he said, really? He said, yeah. He said, well, have you ever been? He said, oh, no. I would never go there. Isn't that how people do God? They don't really know him, but they make a lot of accusations about him. They've never really been in his house. They've never really sat at his feet. They've never really walked with him and talked with him and fellowshiped with him. But when things happen, they want to blame him for all the tragedy, the trial, and accuse him of all the things that are totally untrue about God. And so the reality is this. If you want to cultivate a spirit of faith and you want to grow in your faith and you want to overcome that spirit of unbelief that is simply just a lack of faith, you've got to cultivate a relationship with God. Now, Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, I want you to see this. Hosea 4, 6, God's speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, my people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Now, when he says they don't know me, he didn't really mean they didn't know him because they knew who God was, right? They knew who God was. They'd been serving God. They'd been worshiping in his temple. They'd been telling the stories of their heritage, of how God led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and how he rained man out of heaven. These were people that knew God, but they really didn't know God. It's kind of like when you were in elementary school, you remember writing those little notes, you, you like that little girl or that little boy, depending on who you are, you'd say, uh, I, I, I like I, I like you, do, do you like me? And then you'd say, do you like me like me? Y'all remember that? Oh, I know you like me, but do you like me like me? See, there, there are a lot of Christians, Christians, they're saved, they're going to heaven, and they know God, In the sense that they know He's a Savior that will rescue them from hell. But they don't know God. They've never really cultivated a relationship with Him. They're glad they're saved and they're glad they're not going to hell. And they're really glad they're going to heaven. And they know that God is God. But they don't know Him. They know Him. But they don't know Him. And and the writer of Hosea, Hosea, uh, as he's speaking on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he addresses two elements of intimacy that the children of Israel were lacking on. Look what he says. He says, since you priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priest. So he's addressing the priests. I mean, these are guys that are handling the holy things of God. They're offering sacrifices to the Lord. But yet the Bible says, even though they know God, they refuse to know him. See, their knowledge of God was intellectual and not experimental. And by experimental, it's it's the word used in Genesis, where the Bible says, And Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. How many know that was more than intellectual knowledge? He didn't just know about Eve, he knew Eve. (laughs) They got intimate, and out of intimacy, something was birthed into the world. There are a lot of Christians that are not experiencing the supernatural power of reproduction because they're not knowing God. There's a lack of intimacy. God told the priest, he said, you know me, but you really refuse to know me. You refuse to walk in fellowship with me. You refuse to have a daily conversation with me. I want to encourage you in this. You ought ought to be intimate with God. You ought to spend time with God every day. You ought to talk to God. You ought to worship God. You You ought to fellowship with God. You ought to have a relationship with God that is just as real, if not more real, than anything you have with the people in your family. Now, here's the key to a relationship. The key to a relationship is communication. And communication is not communication unless both people are speaking. Many Christians pray to God, and by that I simply mean they tell God all their problems. But they don't actually talk to God because there's never any communion. We need to talk to God. We need to know Him. See, the one of the ways we overcome unbelief or that lack of faith is to simply cultivate a life of intimacy. Because the more you know Him, the easier it is to believe Him. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul said, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Now look what he says. For I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul said, I know in whom I I have believed. I know in whom I have believed. He said, I know the God that I believed in. And this is what he says. I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to to keep what I've committed to Him. Here's the reality. The more you know Him, the easier it is to have faith in Him, to do what He said He would do. Many of us lack faith because we lack intimacy. And the more disconnected you are from a person, the the easier it is to begin to question the motives of that person's heart. Somebody that you talk with, and are in relationship every day, you don't question the motive of their heart very often because you know them. People you see once a week at church, or maybe you see every other week at, at a sporting event, those people, when something happens that's a little bit weird or squirrely in your relationship, you're right, and you're like, man, I don't know what's going on here. If you don't really know them, you'll actually begin to question the motive of their heart. Do they really care about me? Are they really working for our good? Does this relationship even matter to them? But the more you know somebody, the less you actually begin to question their motive because you have an intimate relationship with them. So we need to cultivate that. The second way he said they need to know him, look what he said. Uh, if we go back to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, he says, since you, have, since you priests have refused to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. And since you have forgotten the law, of your God I will forget to bless your children how do we know God we know God through relationship and we know God through his word see we have an opportunity by the Holy Spirit to live in intimate communion with God but we also have the opportunity through the Bible to hear read and know the will of God the plan of God the purpose of God for our lives it's kinda like the guy that uh, discovered a uh, Uh, a magic bottle in the bottom of the ocean and when he rubbed the bottle a genie came out and the genie said hey, uh, I don't have three wishes to give you he said, but i tell you what I'm going to do he said, I'm going to let you go before God and you can ask God three questions about anything and he'll answer them so the guy got all excited and he said, okay, okay. He said, here I am. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. He said, all right. He said, uh, I know what I'm going to ask God. First question, um, why do bad things happen to good people? And the genie says, man, that's a bad question. He said, you can find that in the book of Job. He said, oh, okay, okay, okay. He said, uh, he said uh, well, let me see. What, what, I know what I'm going to ask God. What, what happens to a person after they die? He said, oh, that's a bad question. He said, you can find that in the entire New Testament. He said, John chapter 3, Jesus tells you that. He said, you read 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible tells you that. He said, you read Romans chapter 8, the Bible tells you that. He said, that's a bad question. Don't ask God that question. He said, okay, let me think, let me think. He said, I got it. He said, why do my shoestrings always break when I'm in a hurry? He said, good question, ask God that. (laughs) See, the reality is, is most of the questions we have are actually in the Bible. The problem is, we just don't know the Word. And because we don't know the Word of God, we don't know the God of the Word. I'm going to say that one more time. Because we don't know the Word of God, we don't know the God of the Word. And many times we are lacking faith in a place of unbelief simply because we haven't taken the time to know the Word and know God. Amen? Amen. Let me give you the second element of unbelief. It's a wavering of faith. A wavering of faith. And a wavering of faith is a result of disappointments and setbacks. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever have ever experienced a disappointment or a setback in life? Anybody? All right. Three of you. Anybody else? Okay, wonderful. I I told second service that I was going to have to go out and preach on the street corner because nobody I was talking to knew what I was talking about. So if you've ever experienced a disappointment or a setback, you understand they happen, right? They happen pretty regular in life. And the reality is simply this. The world's remedy for disappointment is this. have Have you ever had somebody tell you this? Well, the way you don't get disappointed is just don't get your hope up. Just don't get your hopes up. See, if you never get your hope up, you'll never be disappointed. That's what the world says. Never get your hope up, and if you never get your hope up, you'll never be disappointed. But the only thing wrong with that philosophy is that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter, one, chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So if you never get your hope up, then you never exercise your faith. And if you never exercise your faith, then you're never going to see God show up and show out in your life. Because faith is the catalyst through which God works in your life. Amen? And so God wants us to get our hopes up. God wants us to to live in a place of expectancy where we are walking by faith. But we've all experienced, and I am I'm raise both hands... A wavering of faith. I want to give you a great story. It's out of the Gospel of Mark. And I I want you to see yourself as I saw myself in this scripture. Mark chapter 9 is the story of a man who had a son who was demon possessed. And he brought his son to Jesus' disciples and they couldn't cast the demon out. And so now in desperation he's bringing his son to Jesus in hopes that Jesus is going to heal his son and set him free from this demonic spirit. And the Bible says this, So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, wreathing and foaming at the mouth. Now let me just give you a little free piece of information this morning, a little free revelation, okay? This scripture is awesome because it gives us an insight in, into what happens when we begin to bring people to Jesus. See, how many of you ever had somebody that you loved that didn't know the Lord and you started praying for them? You ever prayed for somebody that doesn't know God? How many of you ever started praying for somebody and the more you prayed for them, it seemed like the worse they got? Well, let me tell you why that is. The Bible says when they brought the boy to Jesus... That the evil spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the child into a violent convulsion. He fell to the ground and started foaming at the mouth. I'm talking this is real deal stuff, okay? He's foaming at the mouth, violent convulsions, laying at the feet of Jesus. And, And I want you to understand something. This is a picture of what happens. This is what was happening. This was a demonic manifestation that was intended, I want you to hear this, to rob the faith of the father this was a demonic manifestation that was intended to rob the faith of the father because when you start bringing somebody to Jesus through prayer and you start praying for them and you start praying for them and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse what does the devil always say well you might as well quit praying it ain't working Right? Doesn't he say it? It's not working. I mean, as a matter of fact, the more you're praying, the worse it's getting. You need to stop praying. It's not working. Nothing's happening. Don't you see they're getting worse? I want you to understand. I want you to see today that that demonic manifestation in your loved one's life, when you pray for them and they get worse, all that means is that you have brought them into the presence of God and that spirit in them is trying to figure out how to get away. And you are breaking through and if you will hold on to your faith, the breakthrough will come. Amen? Now let's look at the next part. I love Jesus. Don't y'all love Jesus? And so I want you to see what's happened because we just need to... We read these stories and we just rush through it. I want you to picture this. They bring the boy to Jesus. The demonic spirit, violent, look what it says, a violent convulsion. He is jerking all over the floor. He is wreathing in pain. He is foaming at the mouth. And you know what Jesus does? He ignores the boy. (laughs) The boy falls down, wreathing in pain, convulsing, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus leans over and says, Now, how long has it been like this? I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Because Jesus is not distracted by demonic interference. He is not distracted by demonic interference. And He does not consult the devil on what He wants to do in your life. And so He just, he just I mean, now imagine us. If that would have been happening, we had been like, Call 911! You know, we'd have been going crazy. Not Jesus. He ain't called 911. He ain't saying nobody get him a rag. No, he's just saying. Now tell me, how long has this been going on? And the guy says, look at the father. He said, since he was a little boy. Now look at the next verse. The spirit often throws him into the fire, into the water, trying to kill him. Now I want you to see this, because remember what I said, that that demonic manifestation was an attack against his faith. So he believed that Jesus could heal him because he brought his son to his disciples. When the disciples couldn't heal him, he still had faith and he brought his son to Jesus because they couldn't do it, but I believe you can do it. But I want you to see what happened. He says, often it throws him into the fire, into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Something happened. He went from being in a place of faith that says, I believe Jesus can heal my son, to now wavering in his faith, saying, God, if you can help us, please do something. Now, I can relate, because there have been times and seasons in my life, I mean, think about how many times have you brought something to God, and then on the journey to Him, you realize how bad it really was. And when you started coming to Jesus, you had complete faith he could fix it. But when you got to Jesus, you had already remembered how difficult the problem was. And now you come to God and you say, Lord, if you can, help me. If you can, save me. If you can, heal me. And all of a sudden, we begin to waver in our faith. James chapter 1, we're not going to read it, but the Bible tells us in James chapter 1 that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And if a man asks anything of God, he has to ask in faith without wavering or else he will receive nothing from God. Faith is the catalyst through which God works in our lives. The devil knows that if through demonic manifestations and through reminding us of how difficult our problems really are, if he can get us to waver in our faith, he can rob us of the potential of seeing God move supernaturally in our lives. Now, Again, I love Jesus. Look at the next part. Let's go back to that verse if we can. The end of Mark. Go ahead to the next verse. There it is. Want back up one more? No, you you were good. I'm just slow. Go ahead. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Now I love Jesus. Here it is. Look what he says. What do you mean? If I can. What do you mean, if I can? What do you mean, if I can? In six days, I created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. On the seventh day, I rested. I spoke and the Red Sea parted. I spoke and we walked on water. I spoke and the dead rise. What do you mean, if I can? What do you mean? I can do anything. Let me just say this to you today. Your answered prayer is never determined by God's ability. The answer to your prayer is never determined by God's ability. God is able to do everything. Right? We read that at the beginning. Romans chapter 8, we read that verse twice. Everything, and God causes everything to work together for our good. And if God did not spare His Son, then surely He will give us everything that we need to do His will. God can do anything. God can do everything. And nothing is too hard for God. Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? I can do anything. The problem is never God's ability. Here it is. Look at it. The rest of the verse. And anything is possible if a person believes. Look at the next verse. I love this. It brings us home. The Father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So how do I overcome a wavering faith? Look with me in Romans chapter 4. Go to that scripture in Romans if we can. Romans chapter 4 verse 18 It's a story about Abraham. And the Bible says, Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. So Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. How do I overcome a wavering faith? I have to make a decision of my will. I have to decide that God's promise is greater than my problem. That God's promise is greater than my problem. Look at that last verse. He was fully convinced. That God is able to do whatever He promises. That first verse says, when there was no reason for hope, He hoped. King James says, He hoped against hope. Why? Because he believed that God's promise was greater than His problem. How do we overcome a wavering faith? We have to come to a place of faith where we believe God's promise is greater than our problem his promise to restore your family is greater than your children's desire to destroy their lives it's greater than the power of addiction God's promise of restoration is greater than divorce. God's promise of restoration is greater than sickness and disease. God's promise of restoration is greater than the pain and the heartache and the trouble of your past and your yesterday. God's promise is greater than your problem. So how do I get to a place where His promise has more power than my problem? It goes back to the first point, I have to know in whom. I have believed. I have to know God and I have to know the Word of God so that when I'm confronted with my problem, I know that His promise is greater. His promise is greater than my problem. Let's look at the last element of unbelief this morning. It is literally a withholding of faith. The word unbelief literally there means to withhold faith. And this is is the result of the deception of sin and a hardened heart toward God. I want to read Hebrews chapter 3 to you again, verse 13. Paul said, you must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Sin deceives us, I want you to hear this, into hardening our hearts toward God. Now think about it. Think about how this works in our lives. You can have somebody that does a horrific act to your life. I mean, there can be somebody that will do something horrific in your life. And you will hate that person. But at the same time, you will harden your heart toward God. I mean, think about it. Think about how this works. Don't even make sense, but this is how it works. Somebody does something traumatic to you, you get angry at them, but then you also blame God. Right? You get angry at the person that hurts you, but at the very same time you're getting angry at the person that hurts you, all of a sudden you start blaming God for what's happened in your life. That is the deception of sin. The deception of sin is that it causes us to harden our heart toward God. Even though that person made a choice and made a decision and their choices hurt me in a very deep and a powerful way, for whatever reason, that sin that works in us automatically creates a hardening in our heart toward God. And I have literally counseled with people and I've shared the Word of God with them and I've had people literally tell me, well, Pastor Keith, I just can't believe that. I can't believe that anything good will happen to me because you don't know my life. I've been hurt, and I've been rejected, and I've been treated like garbage all my life. And I can't believe that God is for me and not against me. I can't believe that God wants to turn my past into a glorious future. I just can't believe it. They refuse to believe. What is that? That is a spirit of unbelief that causes us to withhold our faith from God. I've counseled with people that have went through traumatic loss, and they've lost their loved ones traumatically. And I've sat down with people who three and four and five years ago lost somebody they loved and they're still grieving and they're still mourning and they're still walking in that sorrow and that pain. And I've sat down with them and I've said, you know what? The Bible says God is the God of all comfort and He can heal your heart. And I've had people say, not my heart. You don't know how deeply I hurt. You don't know how close we were. Not me. What's happened? Because of the deception of sin, they've actually hardened their heart toward God. And they blame God for their pain. They blame God for their problem. And therefore, they withhold faith. It's not that there isn't faith. It's just that they withhold it. They refuse to believe that God is who the Bible says He is because they've allowed the world to define God instead of allowing God to define Himself. Aren't you glad you're not who everybody else says you are? (laughs) Aren't you glad you actually have the opportunity to define your life by your words and your actions? Shouldn't we let God do the same? Shouldn't we let God define himself by his words and his actions instead of allowing the accusations of a world that doesn't know God to tell us who God is? Now let me give you one final thought before we close up today. Faith is the foundation stone. Faith is the foundation stone upon which God does everything. Everything. Everything that God does in you, everything that God does for you, everything that God does through you, He does by faith. As a matter of fact, you can't even be saved without it, right? The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the foundation stone upon which God does everything. Faith is essential for what God wants to do in your life. And the last part of that statement on the screen is just a reminder. I've said this many times here at Liberty, but I think it's always worth remembering. And that is that God doesn't respond to need. God responds to faith. See, the reason that many people are deceived by sin and hardened in their hearts toward God is because they think God responds to their need. And so they give God their need, and 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 and nothing ever happens. Because God's not looking for your need. God is looking for your faith so He can meet your need. God is looking for your faith so He can meet your need. Most people spend their entire prayer life telling God about their problem and they give God their need. God says, I already know what your need is. What I need is your faith that invites me to work in your need so that your life can be changed. See, the reality is is that we have got to shift from being a beggar who begs God to being a believer who trusts God. See, when I believe, I trust Him. See, believers actually believe they deserve what they're asking for not based on their merit, but based on the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says this, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy to help us in times of need. The only way you'll come boldly before God is in faith. Faith creates a Holy Ghost boldness that allows you to experience the mercy and the grace of God to meet every need in your life let me give you a closing scripture first John chapter 5 verse 4 says for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith this is the victory What's the victory that overcomes the world? What's the victory that conquers temptation? What's the victory that breaks the stronghold of sin? What's the victory that restores your family? What's the victory that redeems your mind? What's the victory that puts all the pieces back together? The victory is your faith. Let me give you a final thought. Every person in this room is living their life to the fullness of their faith. Every person in this room is living their life according to the fullness of their faith. The only way to elevate the potential of your life is to raise your faith in Christ. Right now, if you're not happy with the place you're at, there's only one way to break out, and that's to break into a new place of faith. I want us to do something together today. Let's just stand to our feet. I want to ask you today, what are you believing God for? Not what are you begging for. What are you believing for? What is your faith in? Where where is your faith and where is your expectation? What? Not what are you begging God to do, but what are you really, with faith, believing God to do in your life today? Because God is ready to respond to your faith. God is ready to respond to your faith. And what we need in our nation and our world is we need a faith lift. We need to lift our faith to a whole new place where we begin to believe God for everything that He has already purchased for us through His Son. I want you to do this if you would. Let's just lift our hands to heaven. And I want to lead us in just a corporate prayer together today. Let's just say this out loud together. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of unbelief. And I thank you today for a spirit of faith to fill my heart and my mind. I commit my life to know You, to know Your Word, and to stand on Your promises. I thank You today that Your promise is greater than my problem. And I lift my faith to a place of intimacy with You where I will live And grow and become the person you've called me to be. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise today.